It is an honor for me to be here. I wanted to begin by telling you that the, the chapel happens to be a continued ministry to me. I'm a uh, subscriber of the podcast, and very often the uh, chapel services sit next to Freakonomics and This American Life on my podcast. So thank you. I have to tell you, um, I enjoy listening to the faculty, but that's to be expected. You guys are supposed to be amazing at this. You can only listen to Jill Gregory blow your mind so many times before it's kind of liking watch Michael Jordan win his sixth championship. You just think it's going to happen. But I must confess, I like listening to the students. I feel like I have more empathy for what they're doing. Maybe it's my age. I feel a little bit closer to them. That's for a couple reasons. One being this, they usually open up by thanking faculty for their experience here, which I would also like to do. But in them, I also sense a bit of nerve, which I now get. Being invited to preach here is a little bit like being invited to play basketball with the Dallas Mavericks. You have to be on your A game or you'll look silly. Because of this, and this just isn't a problem here, it's a problem in Waco, I've developed a strategy. I just steer clear of the information that my congregants are going to know better than me. So, for example, poor UBC has not heard a thought from the patristics since 2008 when David Wilhite showed up at (laughs) UBC. And one would think that you're safe having John White there. He's just an ethicist after all, but one who specializes in the theology of sport, which, as it turns out, will really empty out the sermon illustration arsenal. This strategy that I developed, of course, makes a lot of sense to me out of Eric Howell's situation over at Dayspring. It's probably the only place besides here where there's more PhDs per square inch in all of Waco, and now it makes sense to me why he would read a text and simply silently reflect. I think I'd do the same thing. (laughs) Well, I intend to put that strategy to use this morning here at Truett, so let me review. Dr. Arterberry has ruled out my preaching of Luke Acts. Todd Still is like a black hole for all things epistle. (laughs) Joel Weaver has got Mark covered, but let's be honest, he's thinking about tailgating on the Brazos. (laughs) And anything those guys don't have covered, surely David Garland has written a book or commentary on. I'm a pastor, so I thought about trying to preach about that, but of course Robert Creech has at least 20 more years of experience, and then there's the Old Testament, but between Non Cook, Tucker, and Reed, I dare not. So I've come up with an idea. Would you please open up your Bibles to 1st Maccabees? (laughs) I'm just kidding. If I have done my research correctly, though, I don't think we have a John specialist in the house. I suppose the strategy I've developed is a bit dysfunctional and stems from my unhealthy desire to say something here that everyone might not already know, but I have good news for you, especially of those of you who might be looking to make a late amendment on a... Uh, SBL paper. I uh, have recently become privy to some groundbreaking research. I'll begin the story this way. In 1946, just a year after World War II, there was a boy on the south bank of the Black Sea. He was trying to skip rocks, but very unsuccessfully because the waves were rather large that day. So he turned around and there was this cliff behind him and he started throwing rocks. Well, there was holes in the side of this cliff and he made a game out of it, throwing rocks into these black holes that would disappear, and he heard a shattering noise. So he quickly scaled the side of this hill, climbed in, and found a broken clay pot with some wrapped up scrolls. Well, he took those home. His dad traded them away for a goat. They ended up on the black market until very recently. The Black Sea Scrolls fell into the hands of scholars who have made them available to me and me only. So what we found in these Black Sea Scrolls was quite interesting. 
It affirmed our canonical presuppositions. We felt good about the Bible we've put together. But there were a few new documents that have yet to have been discovered, and I'd like to share one with you today entitled, A Day in the Life of the Johannine School on Patmos. I've read it so many times, I'm just going to try and tell what happens in this document. So John and his disciples are sitting around a campfire, remembering, laughing about Jesus And off in the distance, John sees someone rowing towards shore, and he yells out, What news from Asia Minor, Polycarp? Polycarp, not quite visible at this point to John, had a suspicious look on his face and remained silent till he pulled up onto shore. Kept quiet until he got to the campfire among the middle of them, held three documents in his hand, and he said, Well, I've got good news I've got bad news, and I've got medium news. What do you want to hear first? John didn't miss a beat. Why, the good news, of course. A small chuckle broke out, though they'd grown weary of that sort of humor aimed at double entendre and John. (laughs) Well, Polycarp says, our gospel has been reviewed by three different major newspapers. Now, that would be the end of our invigorating novel research, but as it turns out, these three newspapers happened to be on interlibrary loan when Alexandria burned down. We have them this morning. The good news. The Roman times were more than a font. This from Richard Barberage. (laughs) Potmos's Pope is dope. John is mystical magic. What the synoptics couldn't say, John yells. This is a gospel for the young and old alike. Its waters provide a space for children to wade and elephants to swim. And what I would guess is about 21 chapters. Readers will meet the Samaritan woman at the well, a curious Nicodemus, and see the dead resuscitated. Regular readers of our crime column, who done it, will love the intrigue created by a whimsical, beloved disciple figure who keeps us guessing. This gospel truly provides a word that illuminates our understanding of Jesus. Well, John replied with that bird, she always gets it right. The medium news, Polycarp. So Polycarp pulled this out. The Galatian Gazette, the news from somewhere north of Phrygia. This from Richard Barr Hayes. With an eye of an eagle, John delivers a perspective of both transcendence and imminence. With this eye, we see something new in John. A Thomas who doubts, water turned to wine, and a passion weak chronology with a potent theological suggestion. Yet this gospel is not all glory. For example, after reading John's gospel, my colleague Jack Barr Sanders recently complained that John lacks ethic and that his only concern is, and I quote, Are you saved, brother? To add injury to insult, he suggested that if John saw Luke's dying man in a ditch, he checked to see that if he believed so he could have eternal life but do nothing more. Perhaps Sanders and I are reading a different gospel, or he has missed the costly demands of Jesus' fruit conversation, what I would guess to be about chapter 15-ish. But that's not the only criticism to be had. My other colleagues, Raymond Barr Brown and J. Lewis Barr Martin, have guessed that John's community has had bad relationships with the local synagogue. Without this knowledge of inter-sibling rivalry, I fear much of John's polemical edge could be misconstrued, ironically, even as anti-Semitic, as if readers might forget that J.C. himself was a Jew. But there's too much good to leave this alone. John must be read. Well, of course, John responded and said, a measured response from a measured man. The bad news, Polycarp. The Corinth Chronicle, loose news you'll learn to love. This from Elaine Bat-Pagels. Finally, a disciple who's honest about what they heard and saw. 
John's extensive language about light makes him a close cousin, a friend, and fellow disciple Thomas, who, by the way, it turns out, had doubts about Jesus' bodily resurrection. I've said over and over that the Gnostics know what really happened and that Clement, pseudo-bishop of Rome, is proposing a canon that would exclude them. Clement argued that Thomas went east and his gospel did too, past Eden. These narrow-minded fundamentalists are ruining the sophisticated religious landscape of the Roman Empire. But now John's Gospels provides a spark of divine light within this so-called canon, though a dim one with all of his esoteric talk about the word becoming flesh, but a light nonetheless. Readers should read this as a first step in their conversion process. Well, there was a silence that ensued that could be described as angry. It was the disciple who John picked up in Philippi who broke the silence with his comment, What a load of scubala! See who had their Greek classes. John demanded that Polycarp go get a pen and parchment. And he told him to write this down. This is how Eugene Peterson heard it. From the very first day, we were there, taking it all in. We heard it with our own ears, saw it with our own eyes, verified it with our own hands. The word of life appeared right before our eyes. We saw it happen, and now we're telling you in the most sober prose, what we have witnessed was incredibly this. The infinite life of God himself took shape before us. We saw it, we heard it, and now we're telling you so that you can experience it along with us. This experience of communion with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, our motive for writing you is simply this. We want you to enjoy this too. Your joy will double our joy. Now I pick on Elaine Pagels, but to be honest, I don't really know what the problem was in John's community. I've heard Gnosticism, I've heard Docetism. We know by the time he writes the second epistle that he's lambasting those who say Christ didn't come in the flesh. The NRSV, which was read earlier, translates key phrases this way. We heard, we saw, we touched, we've seen it, we've testified to it, we declare what we have seen and heard. I like to think that if it was appropriate, John would have added, and I even remember how he smelled before and after the alabaster jar. Trust me, Judas was the only one objecting. And maybe even a few words about the flavor of freedom found in the Eucharist. A few months after I graduated in 2004 from college, one of my good female friends decided to give blood. I think if everyone there could have a mulligan, they would have realized that her five foot, 100 pound frame probably didn't have a pint of blood to spare. Now you've given you a clue, you might have guessed what happened. She stood up and no sooner had she stood up and she fell straight back and was knocked out. Woke up in a hospital, everything intact. But in the months that followed, Jocelyn lost an alarming amount of weight. Her digestive system was fine. Her problem, though, was that she had lost her sense of taste and smell, and all food had become repulsive to her. Well, eventually her senses came back, and I don't mean to make a sensory martyr of her. After all, she is no Helen Keller, but her story illustrates how precious our senses can be. I think I'm probably in the minority of people in America that I'm going to miss the NFL's replacement refs. Nothing was more effective at making people forget a bad sermon than a blown call at a critical moment in their game. Again, it can be tough preaching in Waco with all these academic professionals around. So when I read John's text, I couldn't but help think of Baylor's philosophy department. Surely John's appeal to the senses would get their epistemological undies in a bundle. Poor John did not have the luxury of being educated and justified true belief and warrant and proper function. Such frivolous claims he makes, or does he? Speaking of the NFL, the only place where I see John 3.16 show up more than a football end zones is in the lectionary. 
Every time I turn around, the church calendar is talking to Nicodemus about snakes on a stick and being born again. And it's in that text that we get some intriguing suggestions from John about Jesus. Three times John tells us that Jesus will be lifted up. Hoopso. I think that's how you'd say the Greek word. John 3, 14, 8, 28, and 12, 32. I don't remember if my Greek flashcard gave me the options, but hoopso can mean either to lift up or to exalt. John gives us a tantalizing choice, one of the double entendres I was referring to earlier. Such an intriguing way to ask readers a question. John's checking with our eagle eye to see what we see soaring over the text. How do you see the word became flesh? This reminds me of John's synoptic step-siblings who are constantly reminding readers to let him who has ears hear, or even the psalmist who says, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's the kind of knowing I suspect that John Wesley experienced when he said his heart was strangely warmed. A few years, a few years ago, the Discovery Channel ran a program that explored all the sociological, anthropological, and archaeological factors that help them put together a composite sketch of what Jesus looked like. It's on your worship guide if you want to take a peek. It's my favorite picture of Jesus. For no other reason, he doesn't have blue eyes, nor is he Caucasian. A grave disappointment to Christian bookstores everywhere. I suspect, though, that John would have little interest in our guessing games. He's not asking if we knew what he looked like. As Eugene Peterson says, he's testifying about the infinite life of God which took shape before him. This week, the lectionary breaks his, uh, this week in the lectionary, God breaks his silence in the 38th chapter of Job. It got me thinking about Job's conversation and eventual response, which comes in chapter 42. Let me read verses 3 through 5. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and declare to me, you to me. I had heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. The infinite life of God took shape before him, and Job saw something too wonderful to understand. This is a tough task John has. Ben Social Rhetorical Witherington suggests that John is writing, what John is writing here is less epistle and more homily. John's a preacher and he intends to preach. Sure, it comes to his community in the form of a Word document and not an audio file, but John is preaching. I think that's a helpful clue for understanding the type of hearing and knowing that the senses may be doing in John's hearers. I want to suggest that we leave the rationalizing about a Nazarene from history to the Jesus seminar, but the church ought to be in the business of preaching Jesus. We'll let Time and the History Channel and NPR do fascinating stories about Jews in April, but the church is going to herald the good news about the resurrected Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer got it right when he discovered Christ is not only present in the word of the church, but also as the word of church. Christ's presence is his existence as preaching, and preaching the whole Christ is present, humiliated and exalted. It is the form of the presence of Christ in which we are found and to which we must keep. I know what you're thinking, and I would have quoted Bart, but you hired Bender. <laughs> I went to Truett in 2004 through 2007, and during my three-year stint, I had the privilege of getting to know one of my peers, Andrew Hurd. Andrew's biography is an interesting one. He overcame cancer back when he was 18, played football for two Division I institutions in the Big 12, and heard the voice of God call him to Truett. Now 29 years old, 
Andrew is sick again. He is dying. He has stage four cancer in his heart as he fights. He has a grim outlook from the doctors. I first discovered Andrew's current condition when a mutual friend posted a blog that Andrew wrote on his Facebook account. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to read a portion of it. I must warn, there's a small expletive in here, and I thought about editing it because this isn't my home turf, but since Andrew's dying, I thought we would give him a clear word. This isn't all of it, but it's part of it. It's called, The Night Before You Find Out If You're Going to Die. This post is not going to be proof, so I apologize in advance, but I want to get it out the way it comes out. Tomorrow I find out if I will know the year in which I will die. Most people never know this, and I thought you might want to hear what it feels like. First, I'm not scared. If this sounds like I'm trying to be some strong, ridiculous man, know that it's not. For some reason, I trust God and I'm not scared. I'm also not mad. There are children all over the world who are dying, and I figure that I have no right to be pissed off that I might die at the age of 29. While I'm not scared, I am sad. The thought of leaving my wife and my daughter breaks my heart. The thought of Ellie not knowing who I am threatens to drown my soul. I look at my girls and I want to protect them so much that it kills me, that this is out of my control. Welcome to faith, Andrew. I don't have faith that God will heal me. He never promised me that. I do have faith that when we leave this world, my daughter, my wife, and all my family will be taken care of. Tonight, I wish I was a better man than I am today. It is a shame to die short of the man you wish you were, and I believe I have only started the path of growth that I would like to walk. The biggest difference between my last battle of cancer and this one is that I don't feel like I have to put off the most important things that give me a lot, and that gives me a lot of peace. I am sure that there is more to write, but that is all I have for now. Thank you all for your support and prayers. It has, been, it has meant more than I can ever describe. May God bless you for your love. Jesus died so that you could be free. Free to love, free to forgive, and free to really live. Give it a try tomorrow. Live like someone who isn't afraid to die and is loved by a God who created the world. Good night, and God bless Andrew. That's just one of the many profound things that Andrew has written in these few short weeks since he has made his terminal discovery. I tell you that because I find myself very eager to read what Andrew writes, and it recently dawned on me why that is. Because in what Andrew has to say, you can hear Jesus, you can touch Jesus, and you can see Jesus. Andrew is giving testimony to the infinite shape of God which is taking shape before him. And for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, Andrew is preaching Jesus. So true at seminary. May we be a people who are about the business of preaching Jesus.